Tonight, I'd like for us to zero in for a little while on this singular attribute of God, the sovereignty of God. It's because Proverbs has much to say about it, and that's what we've been studying. What does it mean, the sovereignty of God? It means God created all things and he has control, superintendence, and supremacy over absolutely everything he has created. To make it simple, the sovereignty of God means that God is fully in control. Nothing could thwart his plans. He's not taken by surprise. He knows all things in advance. There is no thing in the cosmos, in the created world, in heaven, on earth, and even beneath the earth. There's no thing that can operate independent of Almighty God. He is sovereign. He's fully in control. Nothing can operate outside of his control. I did a survey of this concept of the sovereignty of God in Proverbs, and there's so much, much more than the confines of our time tonight would allow for. I'd just like to share with you three glimpses of the sovereignty of God from the same proverb, Proverbs 16. I'll do this quickly, but you could, if you'd like, you could join me there. Proverbs 16, verse 4. We'll just be there for a few minutes, and then we'll move on. Listen to this. Proverbs 16, verse 4. The Lord, it says has made everything for its own purpose. That is the sovereignty of God. Everything created by God is created according to his intended purpose, even, the verse says, the wicked for the day of evil. God didn't create men to be wicked. He didn't predestine that some would be. That's the result of choice. He knew that some would go a wicked and evil way, and yet even they fit into God's sovereign plan. The sovereignty of God supersedes, overwhelms even the wickedness of humankind. Secondly, in Proverbs 16, verse 9, the mind of man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. That's a statement on the sovereignty of God. We have freedom, that is to say free will, we can freely decide and choose and plan, but ultimately, it's God who confirms or vetoes all that we do. It's the Lord who directs our steps. Now, this poses a bit of a dilemma for us because it looks that we have competing objectives. We have the free will of man, and we have the divine sovereignty of God. If God has the final word on all things, to what extent am I, you, still free? Well, Proverbs 16, 9, which made that statement of these two competing objectives, uh, doesn't seek to explain how they're harmonized. And I've searched the scriptures on this. Maybe you have too. I find no passage of scripture that makes it easy for us to understand. They just require us to accept the reality of both concepts. I am free to make choices, and I'm responsible for the choices I make. And yet, on the other hand, my freedom in no wise compromises the sovereignty of God, and the sovereignty of God in no wise compromises my free will. How they work together, I know not. But in the infinite wisdom and mind of sovereign God, they do. So... Uh, the sovereignty of God extends itself over the wicked, and the sovereignty of God extends itself even over all human plans and choices and decisions. And thirdly, in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, it says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. What does that mean? 
Well, the lap was a reference to this long flowing outer garment that was worn in ancient days. And the lap would be a reference to the folds in the garment in which stones, either of various sizes or colors, would be placed. And they would play a role in decision making. The one in whose lap the lots were put would either blindly extract one and from it he would get an indication with regard to what decision to make or he would simply stand up and one of the stones would fall to the ground and that would also direct his choices. And so it looks like those decisions are a function of mere chance, but this verse says no, no, no. There's no such thing as a mere chance. Even something like that is subject to the sovereignty of God. Now, as a sidelight, that's an unusual means of decision-making. It existed in the Old Testament before we had the complete canon of Scripture, all 66 books. It even found its way into the New Testament up until the time of Pentecost. And thereafter, we need not do something like that because we have the Word of God to guide our decisions. So three things we can see uh, uh, are uh, subsumed under the sovereignty of God. Uh, the wicked, uh, our plans, and even so-called chance events. There's no such thing. They're all subject to the sovereignty of God. And there's one other thing that is subject to the sovereignty of God, and uh, I think we'll find this relevant today. It's this. Who will be our next president? Did you know who will be the next president and how he or she will govern, is already subject to the mind and the sovereignty of God. It's a very uh, challenging and stimulating day in which we live. In this election year, and we look to the events leading up to November, we have all kinds of responses and feelings about the whole thing. Knowing of the sovereignty of God could give us a chance to rest in it all. God knows in advance uh, the sovereignty of God will determine who will next sit in the Oval Office. It doesn't rule out our freedom of choice and the vote, but ultimately it's the sovereignty of God who makes the decision about whom and how that person will lead. I take great comfort from this verse in Proverbs, and as a result I memorized it. Let's see if I can get it right. It's Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. Listen to this. The king's heart... You can substitute president, prime minister, czar. The king's heart, it says, is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. It's an agricultural sort of a metaphor. As a farmer can direct water uh, for irrigation through channels or canals, so too God has that capacity to direct or redirect the thoughts of any governmental leader. I memorized Proverbs 21.1 because it keeps me from getting nervous about this election year and who the candidates are. Proverbs 21.1. Uh, national leaders, presidents, any one of our presidents, largely operates in secret, don't they? Uh, behind closed doors. We don't really know what they're thinking their thoughts, um, their values, their intentions, their convictions, their motives are largely hidden from us, inaccessible and unknowable, but not to God. You see, the sovereignty of God extends itself even into the inner resources of any who would be president, prime minister, or czar. It does not matter. 
There's no such thing as state secrets with regard to Almighty God. There are for us, but not for Almighty God. His sovereignty subsumes all that which any governmental leader is about. And God could make use of godly leaders. Ah, we know that. But he could also make use of ungodly leaders. There was one called Nebuchadnezzar. He was terrible. He was evil and cruel. He was an egomaniac. He conquered much of the world in which he lived, and there's no doubt he thought he was an independent agent. I see it. I want it. I'll take it. That's it, but not true, according to Jeremiah 27, verse 6. God says, now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and then God refers to this pagan king this way, my servant. Nebuchadnezzar had no idea, (laughs) but the heart of the king was in the hand of the Lord, and he could channel the direction of his thoughts and choices and behaviors, just as a farmer does the flow of irrigating water. God is sovereign. There was another evil ruler. His name was Cyrus, and he was the king of Persia, and he conquered the Babylonian Empire. It looked like he was sovereign and in control, but he really was not. According to Isaiah 44, verse 28, God said, It is I who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. This is the sovereignty of God. As I read it, it has an effect on me, which I hope is the same effect on you. Relax, rest. Take this election year seriously. Vote with intelligence. Be a good Christian citizen, but don't worry. If God can handle Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus, he could handle the next candidate for the Oval Office. Don't worry. Then there was a fellow named Caesar Augustus. Perhaps you remember him. He was the emperor of Rome, not a good guy. On one occasion, he decided to issue a decree that all the world would be taxed. As a result, a young couple, perhaps you've heard of them before, their names are Joseph and Mary, uh, were mandated to make their trek from where they lived to their home city, the city of family origin, Bethlehem, where a very, very special baby was born. Exactly in fulfillment of sovereign God's plans announced, through one of his prophets 500 years before the event. Caesar Augustus thought he was calling the shots, but he was really a vehicle in the hand of sovereign God. And God's nature has not changed. God's sovereignty extends over godly leaders, but also, we have to remember this, over ungodly leaders as well. Now we should do our best to identify and vote for a godly Person. However, if we're not given that option, we should rest, nonetheless, in the sovereignty of God. It's wise. This book of wisdom suggests it, Proverbs. It's wise to live in light of the sovereignty of God, without which we will be cynical. We will be angry. We will be frustrated. We will fall below the line of despair. We'll be hopeless. We won't be inviting. We won't be good ambassadors and representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the God of all hope. 
if we let the circumstances of the day extinguish the fire, then we will obliterate any evidence of the sovereign Lord Jesus in our life, and we will not be attractive to those out there who are putting their hopes in one of the candidates for the office of the presidency, rather than in the king who is above all kings. The sovereignty of God in this state, to me, is one of the attributes or characteristics of God that I find most pleasant, delightful, freeing, and enjoyable. Our God reigns, no matter what. The outworking of God's sovereign plans can proceed through godly as well as ungodly presidents. He can use godly leaders to bless. He can use ungodly leaders to judge. An example is found in Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 8 and 9. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you've not obeyed my words, behold, I'll send, this is reminiscent of the day we live in, even though it was a reference to another people group in another day. Behold, I, 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 I send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord. I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations round about. And I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. God can use in his sovereignty ungodly leaders to bring about correction, discipline, and judgment. I think we're living in that day, personal opinion. Now look, understanding God's sovereignty over the rulers of the earth, in my opinion, once again, should motivate us to do three things. Here's the first, pray for them. Pray for presidents, pray for czars and prime ministers, and all who are in positions of authority. Why? Knowing of the sovereignty of God persuades us he can direct and redirect the thoughts even of, a, of an ungodly occupant of a place like the Oval Office. So says Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He can turn it wherever he wishes. All the more reason to pray. I had one Christian tell me, I'll never pray for this particular president. Uh, he repulses me. But don't you see? All the more reason to pray. Not against, for, for conversion, for salvation. That the leader would surround himself or herself with godly counselors. That the leader's heart and mind would be open to the Lord above all lords. That the leader's decisions would be so orchestrated by God that we Christian people would be enabled to continue to worship him publicly and freely. We should not take it granted. Many Christians around the world can't do it. Our freedoms are eroding in certain ways. We must pray that God would so move in the heart of the king, the president, that our freedom to worship him to live according to our convictions, to marry who we think the Bible allows us to marry, to refuse marriage with reference to those we cannot biblically marry. We should pray that godly, that leaders, even though they be ungodly, would come so under the influence of sovereign God that we would be enabled freely and without penalty to make godly biblical decisions. First thing to do with regard to our leaders with reference to the sovereignty of God, pray for them. Second, Submit to them. If God is sovereign, nobody got into office 
uh, apart from God knowing. There's no such thing as an independent agent. If God orchestrated all things based on his sovereignty, we must submit to whoever it is who leads us. Unless what being, we are being required to do is contrary to the very clearly stated will of God. We must obey God rather than man. I understand that. But short of that, we should pray for our leaders. We should submit to them. And thirdly, we should be at peace in spite of them. I know who I think would be the best president, and you have your uh, perspectives on it as well. And not a one of us may get (laughs) uh, our um, number one choice in the office. It's very interesting to me that God allows the the preference of the people in a democracy to (laughs) to call the day. Thank God in our day, there's no president who's forced his way into office. Every elected president in the history of the United States has just that, been an elected president. And that's not going to change in this elected year either. That means if you don't like whoever it is who gets elected, he's not really the problem. If he or she is a reprobate and a renegade, well, God just gave us who we deserve and who we want. You see what I mean. But it doesn't matter. Based on the sovereignty of God, I can rest no matter who it is. So based on the sovereignty of God, I want to pray for whoever is in office. I want to submit to whoever is in office. And I want to be at peace in spite of who is in office. Folks, we're going to vote for our next president. I know some Christians are saying, I'll not vote if it comes down to certain choices. Well, we can't tell you what to do, but I think that's an an abrogation of your responsibility as a Christian citizen. And by the way, to not vote for one is by default to vote for the other. That's kind of a mistake, it seems to me. But yeah, do what you want to do. It's a free country for a while. We're going to vote for our next president, but it is God who determines who it specifically will be. This is not a matter of opinion. It's a matter of stated, declared scripture. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. What? Hitler? Stalin? What? And those authorities, governmental authorities, which exist are established by God. Want to hear something kind of powerful? When this was written by Paul, the governmental leader was a guy named Nero. Ever hear of him? Not a good guy, really bad. And during Nero's reign, there was government-sponsored persecution of Christians, almost like never before. And yet sovereign God is the one who permitted Nero to be in that position of authority. Why? Because God can make use of evil rulers (laughs) as much as he can godly rulers to foster his plans and purposes. That's why. As an illustration, in Acts chapter 8, the um, authorized government started a government-sponsored persecution program against Christians. As a result, we read this as one of the results of government-sponsored persecution of Christians. We read this in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered. The church, Christians, they were all scattered from Jerusalem throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And what's interesting, that's Acts 8.1. Reverse it. 
Acts 1.8 says, this is the way it's supposed to be. Acts 1.8, but you shall be my witnesses. <laughs> Where? In Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the other most parts of the world. And it's possible that the Christians who received that mandate were not following through on it. So God, in his sovereignty, allows a godless government <laughs> to authorize a plan of persecution of Christians whereby they were forced out of Jerusalem and they scattered about. And with them, they took the gospel to the very places <laughs> God said they were supposed to take the gospel. This is the sovereignty of God. We should take seriously who's in positions of authority, who governs us and all the rest, especially in a democracy. I know that. But we shouldn't lose too much sleep about it because God is sovereign and he can make use of anybody, anybody whom he establishes in a position of authority. This is the sovereignty of God. He can work through ungodly czars and emperors and presidents, yet relax. This doesn't mean they won't have to give account. Oh, no. There is a day of reckoning. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 makes it clear. It's appointed. It's a given for everyone to die. You only have to die once. And after this comes judgment. Remember, the sovereignty of God does not rule out free will. And when uh, people in positions of government authority misuse the trust and make decisions that hurt and exploit the constituency they are supposed to serve, they must give an account to the king of kings. They will. We don't have to get lather up about revenge and give people a piece of my mind and burn down buildings and, and boycott this and all that. We don't have to if we really believe in the sovereignty of God. Our Father will take care of business. And until he calls to task all whom he has put in positions of authority, until that happens, we can rest in his sovereignty. There are some people with us tonight who just returned from Israel. Some of our members were there for the last uh, eight, nine, ten days. Welcome home, folks. The Banfields are here. Richard Veltman, the Bouviers went. They may be sitting back there. The Bouviers usually sit in the cheap seats uh, over there. And, oh, there they are. I'm right about that. Uh, Jonathan Morrison, our staff member, led the group. They have wonderful stories to tell. Uh, about opportunities God gave them to represent him to the people in the land. Um, you think about Israel, modern-day Israel. How did it come to be? This is a theory. You don't have to buy it. There was a holocaust. Horrible. And the uh, government of Germany, the Reich, the Third Reich, um, with Adolf Hitler in, in position of, of power, having the popular support of the, uh, of the people, uh, ushered in a horrific persecution of, of the Jews and came up with the, what he called the Jewish solution, you know, we've got to exterminate them. And, uh, you know, but for God's grace, he would have succeeded. I mean, six million were, were wiped out, but six million survived. I don't know how that, had that happened. It's just the the uh, Nazi Germany was extremely powerful. The Jews had nothing. Uh, and uh, six million perished, six million survived, but where are they going to go? You know, there were all kinds of theories about what to do with the Jews after the Holocaust. There was even a suggestion that they go to Africa, to Uganda. And then a movement uh, came about called Zionism, which essentially says, well, the Jews ought to go to their homeland. Zion, that's where they ought to go. 
But there was no enthusiasm for that, either on the part of the Jews or the, the international community. Nobody was really, was really getting behind the campaign for the Jews to return to their land until the Holocaust. And that aroused the sympathy of the international community, which might otherwise have had no sympathy or even interest in this. And the next thing you know, in May of 1948, Israel, the modern state of Israel is declared a state. So after thousands of years, Jews are back in the land. Please explain that to me. It just didn't happen for crying out loud, this is the sovereignty of God. Exerting itself supremely, even over Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler is responsible for his decisions. I'm not his judge. He has to stand before Almighty God. But for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is available even to Hitler's, but for the grace of God, you have to give an account. You have to give an account for your own sin. You see what I mean? But God used even a tyrant such as this, in my opinion, <laughs> to orchestrate a plan of return to the land, which he prophesied, which God did. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Uh, folks, God is sovereign. We ought to walk around as if we know our Father is supreme and big and high and lifted up. We ought to not stick our head in the sand, walk around with our, our shoulders down and our head hanging down as if the world's coming to an end. No, no, this is our Father's world. Don't you get it? Don't you get it? He orchestrates all things in order to bring about his redemptive plan. Now, let me tell you something as we draw to a close, which in my opinion is the most uh, horrific manifestation of an abuse of governmental authority in human history. It's this. It was the uh, murder of uh, God's own son. There never has been a uh, wicked and evil act perpetrated in the history of humankind by a duly appointed human government, there's never been an initiative by human government as horrific as this. Unholy ones putting to death the holy one. And yet, sovereign God made grand and glorious use even of evil human instrumentality in bringing about the greatest thing imaginable, the way of salvation for one such as you and I. Listen, Acts chapter 4, verses 27, 28, two fellows named Peter and John are praying. And this is what their prayer is to God. For truly in this city, Jerusalem, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, that's the government of the day. But it's not just them. Along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Herod didn't call the shots. Pontius Pilate didn't call the shots. Gentiles didn't call the shots. Jews didn't call the shots. They exercise their free will and must give an account for the crucifixion of the only begotten Son of God. But through it all, God's sovereignty was not compromised. To do whatever your hand and your purpose 
predestined to occur. The crucifixion was evil. It was unjust. It caused enormous pain. It was Satan's doing. It was man's doing. It was what the governmental leaders did. It's what the Gentiles did. It's what the Jews did. (laughs) And yet all along, it all was subsumed under the sovereignty of God so that the most degrading, horrific, inexplicable, irrational, and evil act of human government in the history of humankind did not take the Father by surprise. In fact, he used it to usher in the greatest and most inexpressible gift known to mankind, the way of salvation. And just to show you how sovereign God is, while these governmental leaders were conspiring and orchestrating and manipulating and lying and deceiving, so as to bring about this outcome, they were playing right into the hands of the great Redeemer who prophesied it centuries before. Listen, Isaiah 53, verse 6. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused. He caused. He's the first cause of things. He's sovereign. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. I ask you a question. Who is the him? It's Jesus. But that was written by Isaiah. 700 years before this Jesus came and fleshed. <laughs> to be Emmanuel, God with us. Hundreds of years before Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Jewish religious leadership and the Gentiles and Jerusalem and all the rest, hundreds of years before they did their dastardly thing, God said, it must be this way. And it can come even through the instrumentality of the most godless, wicked people on earth. They cannot thwart my redemptive plans. I am sovereign. So I say this to you as we come to a close. close. If God can pull all that off, (laughs) use the most evil act perpetrated upon humankind by governmental authorities, do you think we're justified in worrying about who's going to be the next leader of our puny government? Come on. That's nothing. Because the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes it. So, Lord Jesus, this is why we bow before you. This is why we worship you and no other. For you alone are sovereign. We're grateful to you, Lord. You're not just raw, sovereign power. It's tempered by your goodness. God, you are perfect in all of your perfections. You are God. And we are pleased to praise you and thank you and bow before you. Thank you, Father, for tying up all the loose ends. There are no loose ends. Things don't happen by chance. There's no such thing as whimsy or the cruel winds of fate. No, you are sovereign over the wicked. You're sovereign over our plans. You're sovereign over what appears to be mere chance. You're sovereign. And we rest and put our hope in the sovereignty of Almighty God. And we say to you, O sovereign God, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this we pray in the name of the mighty Lord Jesus, the name above all names. Amen. Amen. God bless you folks. Sovereignty of God.